Father, we want to see Jesus this morning. So we pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts, and open our minds so that we may receive your glory through your spoken word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we are a people who love to gather. We love to gather for all different kinds of reasons. Just last week, there was a large gathering just down the street at Quail Hollow Golf Course. The PGA Tournament was in town, and, and people came from all over the world to experience it. In fact, many of you were privileged enough to be able to go in and experience it and have a great, great time. We gather for all kinds of things, right? Sporting events, uh, political rallies, religious events, weddings, birthdays, barbecues. The list could go on and on. I'm sure it's going to come as no surprise that my favorite type of gathering is a concert. I love concerts. In fact, I'm going to one tonight. Um, but I, I love concerts. I love when my favorite bands come into town. I get really excited about it. I anticipate it. I do all I can to, to prepare for it, get the babysitter and everything. And then I go, and I love it when the crowd is big and energetic. It just makes for a great, great time. When I was younger, particularly, whenever I would go to a concert, and I went to many of them, I always made sure to buy the t-shirt. You've seen the t-shirts, right? You've got the, you've got the band's logo on the front, and then on the back, it's got all the tour dates. And then I'd go to school the next day wearing that concert t-shirt to let all of my friends know, hey guys, I was there. I got to go. I got in. I love that. And we do this all the time. Whenever we go to Panthers games or PGA tournaments, we buy the t-shirt to let everybody know that we were there. If we are honest with ourselves, we have a tendency to base our identity and our own self-worth on the things that we're a part of. We love to be parts of gatherings, yes, because they're fun, but sometimes we like to be parts of gatherings because we want to let everybody know that we're included. We like being included. We hate being excluded. Think about how you feel when all of your friends get the invitation to that invitation-only party and you don't get that invitation. It makes you question whether or not you're actually part of them or not. It makes you question your self-worth. Sometimes just getting into an event, like a concert or a Panthers game or something, isn't quite enough. At a large gathering like that, there's always those few people that get the backstage pass. What are those backstage passes called? Very intentionally, they're called VIP passes, right? Because it's only the very important people who get to get in and shake Bono's hand or get to take the selfie with Cam Newton, right? It's only the, that's only reserved for the very important people. Well, thanks be to God that God's ways are not our ways and that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. The scriptures that we read this morning just a little bit ago and that we're going to look at today hold out for us a truth about God that I believe we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of. And that truth is that God is a God who gathers. God is a gathering God. It's, it's what he does. And that is a truth that's crucial for our Christian life. But God does not gather in the same way that we gather. You see, God certainly draws a crowd bigger than any musician could ever really hope to, to draw, 
But God does not judge the people in the crowd the same way that we judge the people in the crowd. God doesn't hand out the VIP passes in the same way that we hand out the VIP passes. And that's a truth that we want to look at this morning, that it's a truth that I think we find good news and it's refreshing to our souls and it also gives meaning to our lives. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. In Isaiah chapter 56, let me set a little bit of context for where we are. God is speaking through his prophet Isaiah to his people at a time when they were in exile. About 500 years or so before Christ, Babylon had come in, destroyed the southern kingdom, destroyed Jerusalem, and had taken the the Jews into captivity into Babylon. Those who were not taken into captivity were then scattered all over the known world. And so it's in the middle of this that God then comes to Isaiah and he begins to reveal a plan to redeem them from their current exile. And that plan, will, that plan centers around a, a suffering servant who will bring atonement and forgiveness of sins, which was really the sole reason they were in captivity in the first place. This forgiveness will then open up, uh, open up the way for God's plan to culminate in a regathering of his people from all over the world so that they can enter into a new and lasting covenant of peace with God. And so that's where we're picking up in Isaiah, right in the middle of the book. And this chapter 56 is going to tell us what God's regathering is going to look like or does look like. So again, if you have your Bibles, read with me. Let's go ahead and start with verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my, my righteousness will be revealed. So, after God has, has spent 55 chapters in Isaiah telling them that he's going to bring them a release in a way to be, to be set free from their captivity, both physically and spiritually, in the form of this suffering servant, this Messiah, He then calls on them and says, keep justice, do righteousness. Now, in Hebrew, the words for justice and righteousness are from the same same root, and they are so closely related that in some cases, in translation, they can be interchangeable. So they have this connotation of discerning what is good and choosing what is good, Being, being able to discern what is equitable for all people and and doing what is morally upright and living in ways that is consistent with God's ways. Notice God's reasoning for this. He doesn't come along and says, hey, I want you to keep justice and do righteousness in order that my salvation might be revealed. He says, no, no, no. He says, keep justice, do righteousness for or because my salvation is about to be revealed. You see, what he's saying is, I am about to act. God's about to act. And he, here's a truth that we see through all throughout Scripture, and it's important for us to remember. Whenever we are called to do something, or whenever we are called to live in a certain way, there is always a prior theological foundation for it. There's always a prior theological foundation for it. For example, 
Before the law was given, God gathers his newly liberated Israelites at the foot of a mountain, and he begins by reminding them. He says, he says I am the God who has released you from your captivity. He reminds them who he is. He goes on to remind them, he says, you were once slaves, and now you're free. And so then God begins to give them the law and instructs them on on what it's like to live and how to live into this freedom and into this new identity. St. Paul does the same things in Romans when he reminds Christians not to return to the old ways of sinful living according to fleshly desires. He says, don't do that because that's not who you are anymore. That's not who you are. You have been redeemed. You have been baptized. You have been raised to walk in newness of life. Therefore, live into that and from out of that new identity and that new reality. So also here, or also throughout the scriptures, we are called to constantly remember the promise of the new creation, that God is doing something and will do something where he will ultimately set all things right. And so we can pray fervently, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The point of all this is this, that when we read things like do justice and keep righteousness, it's not new laws or new rules that he's putting in place to govern, govern our lives. It's the reality of what God has done for us and has done through us on the cross of Christ, or for, I'm sorry, has done for us and through the cross of Christ and the promise of what he is ultimately going to do in recreating all things. That sets the agenda for how we live. That sets the agenda for, for righteousness and justice. God acts... And we are called to participate into that and to live from out of that truth and that new identity. Verse two, he goes on and he says, blessed is the man who does this, the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps his, his Sabbath, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. God says that keeping justice and, and righteousness will result in being blessed when his salvation is revealed. Now, sometimes we, we translate blessedness as happiness, and that is a good and, and right translation, but some of the problem of that is that our understanding of happiness is much different than God's understanding of happiness. You see, to be blessed means to enjoy divine favor, and it's in that favor that we find our joy. It's not about material possessions. In fact, blessedness is a state of being in which we receive the good things of the abundant life because our very existence is rightly ordered according to God's holy ways. God teaches us how to order ourselves in order to receive the things that he wants us to receive. It makes sense. If God, who is love, freely creates us to enjoy that loving relationship with him, you would think that he would know how to instruct us in how to live in order so that we might receive all that he would have for us. It's why he goes on and he says, blessed is the one who holds it fast and keeps his hand from doing any evil. To hold fast means to clench something in your hand so tightly that you refuse to let it go. If you hold fast to something, that also means that you you can't pick something else up. It makes it really difficult to pick up other things because your hand is so clenched. I have a son who, when he was younger, loved to wake up in the morning, fill a backpack with all of his toys, 
put it on, and then he would gather everything else that would not fit in his backpack and just kind of grab all of his toys and stuffed animals, everything that he could fit in his arms, and he would walk around like this literally all, all morning, all day. It was kind of cute until it was time to come to the table to, to eat. Say, hey, why don't you come and get some food? And he'd say, I can't, Daddy. I've got too many things in my hands. Of course, I'd say, well, I know, son. You got to put something down if you want to eat. Friends, we do this too often in our lives. We carry around sins and burdens and clinging onto things that do not give us life, only to starve to death when God is wanting to hold out for us things that lead to life. It's why Paul tells us to lay aside all the things that burden us. It's why why St. Paul also tells us to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good, because evil things only lead to starvation and death, and good things of God lead to life. Now that God has instructed his people through Isaiah on what it looks like to orient their lives towards his, according to his promises, he begins to lay out this kind of expanded vision for what his salvation and righteousness will look like. Now, as we've gone throughout the summer, we've said many times that God is a God who likes to surprise. God is a surprising God. However, everything that we've said so far in this passage would not have been surprising to Isaiah's hearers and Isaiah's readers. They knew they were in captivity because of their sins. They knew from generation to generation that they needed to orient themselves to God. And so that wouldn't have been surprising. What would have been surprising is what follows, is what this regathering looks like. It would have been a huge surprise for them. So in verse 3, he says, God through Isaiah says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So it's at this point that Isaiah's listeners would say, Okay, hold up, hold up, hold up. What what, what was that? You mean eunuchs and foreigners, they get the VIP pass also? They get the invitation? Hold on. What are you saying here? You see, Foreigners and eunuchs were always people who were excluded from all the rights and privileges of the kingdom. Jewish eunuchs were not allowed to be ministers in the temple. There was also very heavy restrictions on which part of the temple they could enter. There was heavy restrictions on how their sacrifices were to be offered. Eunuchs were always on the margins of society. A eunuch is a person whose reproductive organs have been damaged in some way, either through mutilation, accident, or birth defect. Regardless of the cause, they were understood to be imperfect people. They were understood to be imperfect people who were unworthy to come anywhere near the holy perfection of Israel's God. They were always excluded from God's presence. Moreover, it's because of the part of the body that was damaged, they couldn't have children. Having children is how your legacy continues. Having children is how you will be remembered. It's how your family flourishes, and it's ultimately how your tribe survives. And so to a people group for whom, who were so focused on genealogies and and family lines, not being able to have children, it meant that you were cursed by God. 
It meant that you could not receive divine favor. And so God comes to him in verse four and says, for thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. Like I said, in generations past, eunuchs, regardless of how faithful they they were, were always, always excluded. But now in this new covenant, in this new regathering, the ones who's the one who orients his life towards the good things of God will receive divine favor beyond imagination. Notice the gifts that God gives specifically to the eunuchs. To the one who always had to stay on the outside, God says, I'm going to bring them in my house, into my walls. In other words, into my very presence. And in the presence of God, they will receive a monument, something that is everlasting, something that can be never taken away. And it's going to be, and it's going to last, uh, and it's going to be better than sons and daughters. Generations eventually die out. And so for those who have no hope of legacy, whose very existence will soon be forgotten and whose family name will eventually die with them, God is giving them a monument, something by which they will always be remembered. God's gifts to us are always, are always better than anything we could ever produce from within ourselves. God's gifts to us, God's grace to us is everlasting, something that we can never produce from within ourselves. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Acts 8. If you remember in Acts 8, it's the story of of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Just mere days after the Spirit fell at Pentecost, God ended up using a eunuch to carry his gospel to Africa. And it was through that eunuch that the gospel that the gospel invaded all of that continent, the whole continent of Africa. The eunuch is remembered in the very pages of Scripture. He has a monument and a name that can never be taken away. Not because of what he did, but because of what God has done and because of what God has done through him. Let me say one last word about eunuchs before we move on. There are many of us who are sitting here this morning that know all too well that our bodies are fragile, that our bodies are limited, and that our bodies just don't work the way that they should. We are faced with things on a daily basis, and I count myself as as one of these, as one of you who suffers things on a daily basis that just reminds us that Our bodies are limited, fragile, and don't work the way that they should. And there's a lot of us who, because of these weaknesses, and because of these limitations, and because of these brokennesses that that we have in our our lives, that might even ask ourselves, should we even continue in ministry? Can God still use us? Can God use us in this state? Let me encourage you that if that's you, that we're actually in pretty good company. Because remember, it was St. Paul who, in 2 Corinthians, said, I prayed three times to the Lord to remove this thorn in my flesh, this bodily limitation. I prayed three times. 
And God's response is not that he was going to remove it, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Paul goes on and says, therefore, I will boast all the more in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest in me. I delight in my weakness, for when I am weak, that's when he is strong. So you might look at this passage and you might say, uh, eunuch, okay, that has nothing to do with me. But let me say that it, that it does. Because, because the fact that God gathers in even the eunuchs and blesses them reminds us that God draws us near and blesses us not based on anything that our limited, broken, imperfect bodies could ever do for God, but based solely on what God has done for us in the incarnate flesh of Jesus Christ. So now, God brings us back to the foreigners in the passage. In verse 3, God goes on and he specifically says, let not the foreigners who have bound themselves to the Lord, in other words, the, the, those who have oriented their lives in such a way to receive the good things from God, let not, them, let not the foreigners say that I will be separated from God's people. Separation is the thing that foreigners fear most. Separation is the thing that foreigners fear most. And friends, we live in a time in which there is a heightened sense of fear and anxiety among the foreigners in our country and in our lives. I was recently hanging out with a really good friend of mine who is here in this country as legally as you possibly can be short of gaining citizenship. And he was even sharing with me that that because of just the way that laws are changing and everything, that there's a, an underlying anxiety that things might not work out and he might have to be sent back to his home country and be separated from his friends, his work, and his family. Now, for him, it's a pretty low possibility, but it's still a real anxiety. And there are people among us and that we interact with every day who have no hope of being here as legally as he is. And let me tell you, that fear and that anxiety is heightened a thousandfold. Now, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but it is a current example that highlights what's going on in this passage. You see, as the Jews were scattered, either those who were taken into exile or scattered throughout the known world, they would come into contact with Gentiles or foreigners. They would come into contact. They would get to know them. And these Gentiles, these foreigners, would, would say, hey, there's something good about your life and something good about your God. How can I get in on that? And they would want to bind themselves to the Lord. However, these foreigners and Gentiles, they would gather with their, with their, their newfound Jewish brothers and sisters and they would hear scriptures being read and they would hear prophecies about a, a gathering and they would be reminded that, okay, well, I'm not really part of you. And so, when something like Isaiah's vision of a regathering would come in, you better believe that they would say, well, what about me? They would be asking the question, what about me? Where do I fit in to all of this? Because at the end of the day, I'm not really part of the natural body of God's people. And so God has a word for them. And he, goes, he comes to them and he says, verse seven, these, these foreigners who have joined themselves to me, I will bring them to my holy mountain. That's Mount Zion, the, the place of the temple. Those who were always excluded are now going to be able to come directly into God's presence, 
to my holy mountain, God, uh, uh, God's house. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. No longer do they have to fear being cut off, but now they will have free and open communication through prayer with God. Moreover, their worship in, in sacrifices will be accepted on the altar. No longer will, will they have to stay just in the outer courts. God says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Again, those who are not part, naturally part of a group always fear being separated, being cut off. Where do I fit in? And God in this, in this new regathering says, you don't have to worry about that anymore. I have brought you near because I'm doing something new. I'm starting a new covenant. It reminds me of the words in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says this. He says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. You were at one time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. And because of that, you had no hope. You had no hope because you were without God in the world. And he says, but now, in Jesus Christ, you who were far off have been gathered near. And he goes on and he says, you've been gathered near by the blood of Jesus Christ. When the temple was, when the temple was, was rebuilt, the, there was the outer court of the Gentiles in which the Gentiles were allowed to come in, but they weren't allowed to go any further. Well, when Jesus comes to the temple, you guys know the story. When Jesus comes to the temple, he finds that the Jews of his day, they had decided that they had a better use for that court. Instead of it being a place where Gentiles can come and worship, they decided, hey, let's make this into a marketplace. Justice was not being kept in that outer court. And so, in Jesus' righteous anger, he, he drives out the merchants. And as he's doing that, he quotes this passage in Isaiah, he says, do you not know that it is written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all people? Jesus cleanses the temple is what we call it. And when he cleansed the temple, he did so so that you and I, the Gentiles, could have access to God in a way that we've never had access before. Jesus would soon thereafter go on to become Isaiah's suffering servant whose death on the cross would gather in both Jew and Gentile so closely to God's presence than was ever allowed before. And so it's through Jesus' shed blood on the cross that he is able to gather us in, Jew and Gentile, closer than we've ever been able to go before, into the very presence and into the very heart of God. Let me say one quick thing about this passage before I, I give a couple little applications here. There are times when sometimes preachers will look at this passage and they will see the call for all people to come and be regathered in. And they will preach it in such a way that it becomes this kind of universal, universalistic call that kind of gives way to a universalism, I should say. The call in, in this passage is a universalistic call. It is a call to all people. The invitation is open for all people, regardless of 
your physical limitations, regardless of your race. The call is universalistic, but it does not give a universalism. There's something that he says over and over and over in this passage. Those who have bound themselves to me, those who follow my covenants, those who keep my ways, who choose what is good, those are the ones who will receive blessedness. There is a call to those who will receive the call and say, yeah, no thanks. I'm going to find my own way in this world. So the, call, so the passage is not that in the end, all is going to work out well for regardless. If you bind yourself to whatever other God, hey, that's cool. That's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is there are two ways in life. There's a way that leads to death, and there's a way that lead, leads to life. I am calling you to come and find life. Follow my ways. Receive the good things from my table. The call is open, and the invitation is, and the invitation is there to come and to find life. God is a God who gathers. It's in his nature. God is a gathering God. As we close, let me just kind of give just three quick outworkings of this passage. The fact that God is a gathering God reminds us that God is a faithful God. It reminds us that God is a faithful God. Here's how. These promises that, that we're looking at in Isaiah, we are living into the fulfillment right now. The very fact that we are here means that these promises through Christ are being fulfilled. We are recipients of this, of this promise. God does not change. God does not change. When God says he's going to do something, he is going to do something. And so we can look at this idea of gathering the fact that, and, and, and say, yes, we are living into this, and we can be reminded that God is a faithful God who when he promises to do something, he fulfills it. As St. Paul says, he who, begin, he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God is a faithful God, and that gives us hope. It is God, number two, is that it is God who does the gathering. It is God who gathers. Jesus says that he came to seek and save the lost. He also said that the, all of those whom the Father has given to him, he won't lose any of us but that we will be raised up on the last day. Therefore, because God is a gathering God and it, because it is God who does the gathering, we can have full assurance of our faith. We have full assurance of our faith because it is God who has sought us. It is God who has gathered us in. We who are broken, lost, unworthy, we've now been found by the God who has sought us and gathered us and has given us a grace that we can never deserve. God gathers us in, and nothing can separate us from the God who has gathered us in. And finally, because it is God who does the gathering, it means that we can rest. There's a sense in which the pressure's off. Here's what I mean by that. It is God who, has, who is at work in the world. He has been working before us and apart from us. Adam and Eve, at the very beginning, they were created on the sixth day. What that means is their first, their first 24 hours of life was simply spent resting in all that God had done for them and marveling at all that God had done for them. 
and they got to simply participate in God's creation. Well, in the new creation, it's the same way. That's how we participate. We enter into Jesus's rest because Jesus has already done something before us and apart from us that he has gathered us in so that we might participate in. And our And the way that we participate in that is to simply marvel at all that God has done. And as we marvel and we proclaim the goodness of all that God has done apart from us and for us, we realize that it's then through us that God is doing his gathering, that God is continuing that work of gathering. We end every service saying, we are a sent people, sending you out to love and serve the Lord. We are sent out in order that through us, God might gather others in. We are sent out in order to be agents of God's regathering. God is at work. God is at work in the world. God is at work in our church. God is at work in our lives. He is gathering us in, and through us, he is gathering others in, so that one day we're going to stand with people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, gathered before the Lord in worship. And it's going to be gathered before him in a way that we can never be separated. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.